Now, are there any questions from last week's study that, um, remember I've been asking, you know, some people will have a question right on the spot, or some people might think about something for a little while, and I, I can be a slow processor, that's what I call it, that I'll reflect continually upon something, and then I'll say, wait a second, we didn't talk about this, or I wonder what she meant by that, or... Um, so when we looked at the, the passage from last week, which was John 20, um, 7, verses t- um, 14 through 24, was there anything that stuck out at you or that you were thinking about after you left here last week that you'd like to talk about? Glory. Let's have some questions about glory. What is your? What are your questions about glory? Okay. Good. And more or less got. Tell us what you got. Well, that it is. Uh, it, the term glory is frequently applied to God, and God's glory is particularly a visible manifestation to humans. Mm -hmm. And then on down here it says... Oh, sorry, just one minute. Did everybody hear that? That God's glory is a visible manifestation of his majesty Mm -hmm. to human beings. Yeah. And down in here, another definition... Glory is revealed through Christ's miracles. It is also closely associated with his death as his hour of glorification. And finally, both the Gospel of John and Paul extend the Old Testament eschatological hope of seeing God's glory and the hope of participating in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of the term glory. Does that make sense to you, what it's saying well, there? it does. It makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it does to anybody else. I think that's a very good point. So we'll, we'll just go with your your definition is great. It's spot on. What, which Bible dic- dictionary this is that? This is, is uh, Collins, um, Paul J. Uptemeyer is the editor. It's good. I didn't bring it, but no, that's that's fine because it's a great it's a great dictionary and the definition is spot on from what I've studied and what I what scripture shows. So you see glory throughout the Old Testament describing the visible majesty of God Himself, and you'll see these visions that the prophets have of the glory of God. There, you know, Isaiah has a vision, Ezekiel has a vision. Um, uh, Daniel has a vision. Whenever they have a vision of God in in heaven, they see the throne of God the Father. It's amazing because they don't have the words to be able to describe it, even in their original language. When you look at Ezekiel one, especially um, one of the things I got to study Ezekiel one with a woman who did her whole Old Testament dissertation on Ezekiel. You always want to study with someone whose specialty is in the area that you're studying. And she was incredible talking about the Hebrew language in Ezekiel chapter 1 because she said the Hebrew doesn't make any sense 
because it's as though Ezekiel's flabbergasted by what he saw. And the only way they can attack, why is the Hebrew in that one chapter so different from the rest of the book? She said, we think it's just because he had, words couldn't describe what he had seen. And so he keeps starting and stopping and saying, it's like this, or like this, or like this, and he just can't adequately describe it. So I think his experience is the experience of the other prophets when they have these visions of the glory and majesty of God in heaven. So, um, and one thing that I will say about it, it, light is involved in this vision of God's glory. There's an aspect of light. Um, So you'll see whenever there's a vision of the throne of God, they don't really talk about the one seated on the throne, almost as if God himself is like the sun. You can't really look right at the sun, can you, without being blinded? So they'll talk about everything around around the, the throne. There were rainbows and there was dazzling light and there were these creatures that were crying out, holy, holy, holy. And, and there was one who was seated on the throne and he was like bronze, really bright. We couldn't, couldn't look at him, so bright. So you get this sense in which the glory of God has this aspect of light to it, this majesty of God in heaven. Um, And then what you see in in the Gospel of John, which is so wonderful, and your dictionary took a stab at this, is is that the glory of God is made manifest in Jesus Christ. Even in John chapter 1, remember John 1, 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of an only son sent from the Father, um, full of grace and truth. I think that's John having seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, in the three Gospels, um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this um, telling of Jesus going up on the mount, on the mountain, and Peter and James and John are there with him, and they have this vision of Jesus. It's almost as though um, he, he lifts the veil on who he is, almost as though he is um, in his, as, as a man and as God, Jesus has all the glory of God contained within a human vessel. He is both fully man and fully God. And so how can this human vessel, this fleshly mortal vessel, contain all of that eternal glory? Um, And yet I think the transfiguration is almost like, you know, one ray of light kind of escaped from that glory. And you see it and they see it and they're awestruck and they don't know what to say. They're flabbergasted and they start saying, kind of idiotic things like remember Peter says oh we'll build three yes well yeah that's right yeah we'll build three booths one for you one for Moses one for Elijah well yes that's right and he has this plan but it's because he doesn't know what to do they've been awestruck by this vision of the heavenly glory that Jesus had before um, before the incarnation and so there's a sense in which that glory of the light and the majesty of God is contained within Jesus but we don't see it always And so in John's gospel specifically, he talks about the signs. Remember that in this first half of the book of John, we're looking at the book of signs that each one of these miracles, that is not just a miracle or a powerful deed, but it's rather like a road sign that points to Jesus Christ and says, gives information about who he is. These signs are, again, like the transfiguration in that they lift the veil a little bit and allow Um, those who have the eyes to see, to see who Jesus is. They give a glimpse of his glory. And there his glory is tied into his identity as God. 
um, and not just a man, fully God and fully man. Um, but in John as well, Jesus' glory is tied not just to that heavenly glory, but also to um, the glory of God's, I would say it's the glory of God's love, that the hour of Jesus' glorification, and again throughout the Gospel of John, John uses glorification to describe Jesus' death on the cross. That is his hour of glorification, and the whole Gospel moves almost like climbing upward a hill, climbs the hill upward, waiting until the moment of Jesus' death, and that's right at the top of the hill. Um, that's what we've been, what we're waiting for, this whole gospel, and that's what the whole gospel moves towards. So in that, well, why is it called the hour of glorification? Well, glorification also, when it's used, um, when you're talking about it as a verb, you know, you hear give glory to someone, give glory to God. There's, so we said there's a light aspect to the word. There's also a directional aspect. Glory is a raising up, an exaltation. Um, and it's what we do in worship, right? We give glory to God. We worship God and we give him the praises of our mouth, the praises of our heart. Those um, rise up like incense. That's some of the language used in scripture to describe worship. The, the praise and thanksgiving, the prayers of our hearts rise up to God. And, and that's a way of glorifying him and worshiping him. So with that directionality, the cross is a raising up of Jesus. Jesus is lifted high up on the cross. And that's one of the aspects of wh why is it called glorification? Um, why is the hour of Jesus' death called glorification? But then secondly, also, um, because that in that moment, that glorified moment, that raised up moment of Jesus on the cross, that is a revelation, a revealing of God's perfect love for hum humankind, that God loves the world so much that he would send his only son to die. Yes, it does. Uh, but that whole page, uh, Peter talked about going to glory. Yes, what does that mean? As a destination. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had trouble with that, getting the definition from that. Of that, it's, it's like it's a place. Glory right. is a place. And I wondered if this is related to the. The black church is rapture. You know, they talk about the rapture. And, it, and it's not just the black church. It's a lot of churches that have this. And and let me just say it's scriptural to talk about the rapture, to talk about being um, drawn into. Um, I don't know what is going on over there. but it, No, it's not Richard. He's, he's as quiet as a mouse. I don't know what it is. I think, yeah, something like that. Well, we will try not to let it bother us, huh? Um, the um, when people talk about going to glory, they talk, they do talk about going to glory. What does this mean, going to glory? Well, I don't know that that phrase is even in scripture. I'd have to do a little study to see if it is or not. But but that going to glory talks about two things: um, dying die and you through faith in Jesus Christ you are reunited with him after death right there's this sense in which the glory okay so Jesus's glory is pre-existent before he becomes human before the incarnation his glory his glory is made manifest during his earthly life we get these little glimpses and liftings of the veil and then the great revelation of God's love for us through um, the death of Jesus that hour of his glorification on the cross and then 
he's raised from the dead. And then you get this sense of this heavenly glory again, that majesty and the glory of the light um, and the holiness that emanates from God himself. And you see that with Jesus in his raised body. It's a glorified body because his body is perfect. His body will never die. And that's the same thing with us through faith in him, that when we, when we die and are raised again to new life, our new raised, resurrected bodies won't have any cancer. We won't have any astigmatism. We won't have any tooth decay. We won't have any um, limps or arthritis. Or what else? Come on, what else? Cancer, no cancer. No, no hearing problems. No, what else? Heart disease, no heart disease, no bunions, no anything. It will just be, we'll have resurrected bodies, right? And so that's what people, when they talk about going to glory, they talk about being raised. And then the rapture, as far as, as far as the rapture is concerned, it, we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, but there is this sense in Scripture, it's in Scripture both in the Gospels and in Revelation, that when Jesus comes back, and it's the end of all human history, those who haven't died yet, but believe in Jesus, poof, poof you know, we'll, we'll be raised, it will be judgment day, so so. What, what will happen? We don't always know, and there are a lot of different views about what Revelation says will happen. That involves Jesus' second coming. Rapture. rapture. But the glo- going to glory talks about death. And, and essentially the rapture does, too, talk about going to glory. Because one or the other will happen first. Either we'll die or Jesus will come back. But the result will essentially be the same. Does, does that make sense in that that's the beginning of our eternal life in a realized fleshly sense? Okay, I hope that helps with glory. Okay, good. Well, and when Jesus is talking about glory in the last passage, remember we were talking about the glorification, the glory that um, the three persons of the Godhead give to each other. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that that glory glorifying another person is essentially saying, after you. No, you, let me hold the door for you. No, let you go first. No, let's go to dinner where you want to go to dinner. Let's, you know, in a healthy way of saying, no, I really, you know, I really love you and I want you to, I want you to be happy. Um, not in a, there, you know, there are unhealthy ways to do that, but it, a God be, you know, God being God, it's always a healthy way when God's doing that. Um, and so that sense of glorifying is a way of lifting up the other person and exalting the other person. And that's essentially what the father does with Jesus and what Jesus does with the father. And that's what he's talking about, that as he's teaching, he, and there's that sense of that directionality of glory. He is raising up the Father. He's exalting God the Father because he, he's pointing to God. He's teaching, but he's saying, it's not about me. It's about God the Father. And there's a humility in that that Jesus has. So does that make sense with what he's talking about with glory there? Thank you, Lenora. I think that was helpful to look at from last week. Does anybody have any other questions about our passage from last week? Okay, you sure? Um, so just a reminder where we are. We're in chapter 7. You might get sick of me saying this every week, but I always think it's good to review and just say, where are we again? We're in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, still in this book of signs leading up to Jesus's, um, the last week of Jesus' life. And actually, the second half of the book of John will take about a week 
takes us three years to get through the first um, three years of Jesus's life, excluding the prologue, to get through the first 12 chapters, first 11 chapters of John. And then chapters 12 through 21 will take one week. It's really interesting. Um, But now we are in chapter 7, at the beginning of chapter 7, we saw Jesus going down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, And the Feast of Tabernacles was when the Jewish Jewish people remembered and celebrated um, God's provision for them when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. When they wandered in the wilderness and they didn't have places to live, they lived in tents. And God himself dwelled with them in the tabernacle. Remember that tabernacle, it was a precursor to the temple of David, of Solomon, excuse me. But the tabernacle was, um, God told them how to build it, how to construct it as a place where he would reside with them, where they could go to worship him and be with him in spirit. So, um, so they are remembering this time in the desert, and they remember it um, through that image of God dwelling with them. And then in the feast itself, they, um, they live in little booths that they make for themselves, like little lean-tos made out of branches. And there's a strong image of water and light. And water is very important because of the water in the desert. When Moses struck the rock and water gushed out for the thirsty Israelites to drink in the desert. Um, and then remember, last week, ta- we, last week we talked about how Jesus is essentially defending his action. Remember, he, the last time he was in Jerusalem was chapter 5. And there he healed a man who had been paralyzed for several, several years, who was lying by that pool. And he healed the man on, on the Sabbath. And it says at the end of that, at the end of that little section in um, chapter 5, verse 18, that people were trying to kill Jesus because he had done this, because he had healed on the Sabbath. Does anybody remember his argument, his defense for why he was able to heal on the Sabbath. He gave this defense in last week's passage. Do you remember what it was? Exactly. Yeah, he talks about Moses, he talks about the law, and he makes what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. So he says, well, if we do this lesser thing on the Sabbath, then why can't I do this greater thing? He uses that comparison to say, you allow, even though you're, you say you shouldn't work on the Sabbath, you allow a baby to be circumcised on the eighth day, which sometimes falls on a Sabbath. And we figured out the math. Remember, we said, he's born on a Friday, then the next, the eighth day would be a Sabbath. And so you would have to circumcise him on the eighth day. But they made an allowance for that because they saw it as an act of healing. Um, because they saw circumcision itself as a way of cutting evil out from the human heart, a symbolic action that removed, um, that essentially said, um, it's so much a part of us that we need to cut it out of ourselves, cut the evil, the sin away. Um, and that, um, so then circumcision was an act of healing, and it was a sign of the covenant between Abraham's descendants and God, that God himself would be faithful even when um, fallen human beings were not, when Abraham's fallen, fallen um, descendants were not. And so um, Jesus is essentially, when he says this about circumcision, he's healing a whole, the whole person um, and not just enacting this sign of healing. It's a greater thing, a greater work. And that essentially what he's saying is that he, Jesus Christ himself, does divine work. That God, the Father, is perpetually at work and yet keeps endless Sabbath. And that was a Jewish belief. 
that you know the universe doesn't fall apart on a Sunday or a Saturday. It was their Saturday, was their Sabbath. So God is still working somehow, and yet He's somehow also able to be perpetually at rest. It must be a part of His eternal qualities, his divine life, that God himself is able to both simultaneously work and keep things going in the universe, and yet he's always at rest. He's always peaceful. He's always um, celebrating that joy and abundance that he just has within himself. And so Jesus, by saying that he too can do this work of recreation on the Sabbath, he's equating himself with God, and they don't like it, and so they keep trying to arrest him or kill him. And that's what we'll see in, an, in a crescendo. This is just, it's going to get worse and worse throughout the Gospel of John. Things, there is more and more opposition to Jesus, and we'll see it increasing right up to the very moment when he dies. Um, but we see it right here in chapter 7. So we see, um, any questions about that before we look at the actual content of these verses? Does that make sense about what Mildred was saying about circumcision and about that argument, why Jesus, Jesus' argument about why he can heal on the Sabbath? In this passage, we see some, um, I have two questions, you know, essentially, do you notice that they're asking all of these questions, the crowd, as it responds to Jesus himself, and as the crowd responds to Jesus' teaching, they have all these questions, first of all, about where Jesus is from. And they're confused about where he's from. And then they have some confusion about where Jesus is going. Where is he from and where is he going? And what does it tell them about who he is? And then what is their response to that? Right, where do you, where do you see that, Bitsy? Um, That's right. There's some back and forth. Is he a good man, or is he deceiving the people? Is he a misleader? And that is actually a technical term for a false prophet. Is he a good man? Or is he a deceiver, a false prophet, who will lead the people astray? And it was believed, you know, in Deuteronomy, there's, I think it's Deuteronomy 13. I put it on one of the earlier worksheets. There's this idea that, or handouts, that by leading people astray, um, there's this idea, this background with apostasy, that a false prophet, the fear that a false prophet who didn't um, exalt Yahweh would be leading people to worship another god. Essentially, Jesus is making claims to divinity. So they could essentially believe that he was a false prophet if he's claiming divinity. If Jesus is divine, he deserves worship. Right? I know. What do you think about that? They said they would be afraid to get in trouble with the law. I know. Right, exactly. That that those who do believe are afraid to say it. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The Jews here, when you say, see that, we're not talking about the ethnic Jewish people because they're all, all of the, all of the people that we're talking about here are Jewish. <laughs> so we're not talking about the Jewish people. When John uses that term, he specifically is talking about 
the opposition that Jesus experienced from the Jewish religious leaders. And there were, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes were kind of the three ones that we hear about from the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And John, for some reason, we're not totally sure why, but we have ideas about why he does this. He kind of lumps them all together and says the Jews. Certainly they were the Jews, the name the Jews came from the fact that they were in Judea which is the southern part of the land of Israel, Palestine, around Jerusalem. So certainly they're Judeans, and they're Jews, yes, but he uses it kind of as a blanket statement for those who are opposed to Jesus. And I think, we're not really sure why, but it, part of it probably has to come, has to do with what's going on in the church that John is preaching to and speaking to. Because in the church, if, if as we suspect, John was writing around A.D. 85, then it was around the same time that Jewish Christians were being kicked out of the Jewish synagogues so that Jew, um, Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus were saying, no, you've really got to go talk about Jesus somewhere else because you can't talk about him here because you're misleading people because that's not right. And, and the Jewish Christians had to say, but, this is, but we're Jewish too. And they had to say, well, how can we be right? How, uh, how do we believe in Jesus and yet still trust in our Jewish heritage? Why don't they believe in Jesus? And John is answering that question a lot of a lot of the time. He's saying they didn't. Some people didn't believe in Jesus because of sin, because of their own hard-heartedness to, toward God, because they rebelled against God and they didn't see who it was before them. They didn't see that in Jesus Christ, Yahweh had come to dwell with His people. Does that make sense? So by calling them the Jews, these religious leaders who reject Jesus, John, in writing his gospel, is helping those Jewish Christians that he's writing to to be able to say, oh, it's still okay for us to believe even though our brothers and sisters don't believe in Jesus. We can see, we lament that they don't believe in Jesus, but we see now that it's because of human sinfulness and not because of um, not because we're wrong in believing in Jesus. Does that make sense, Kay? Yes. Okay, good. Do, do you see other places where there's opposition, um, not just from the passages we've read before, but in the passage um, we read for today? We're starting today with verse 25. I see in verse 25 through 27 that, some, okay, it says, Some of the people of Jeru- Jerusalem therefore said, is, Okay, is not this the man who they're seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, that this is the Messiah, that this is the anointed one? So they're saying, Maybe he's really the Messiah, maybe this is it, because we don't see anybody coming to tell him to shush. So maybe this is really it. But these are the same people who then, in the next verse, say, Well, but that we know where this man came from. He came from Nazareth in Galilee. And when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. So they're talking themselves out of belief right there. It's pretty tragic. Do you see that? They're right on the verge of belief. Could it be that this is the Christ? And then they talk themselves out of it. There was a belief that um, the Messiah, there was a mixed 
understanding about where would the Messiah come from. Remember when the three wise men came looking for Jesus and they go to King Herod and King Herod set, talks to his, um, his, his guys, he talks to his religious leaders and he says, what, do the, what does scripture say about where the Christ is to come from? What does the scripture say? And his advisors say Bethlehem. That, that there was this belief that as the son of David, as a descendant of David, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So when the three wise men come, he, they, they accurately tell them to go to Bethlehem. So there's, there was that belief in um, the Jewish first, you know, first century Jewish thought. But then there was also another belief coming from other areas that the Messiah would reveal himself so suddenly and in such a drastic way that everybody would know who he was. And that is a legitimate belief also. And, um, but we know as Christians, what, where do we put that into our mindset as Christians? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, we believe that Jesus will come back, that on his second coming, the Messiah will be so clearly revealed that everyone will know that, it is, that he is he's it. He is Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Um, come back to claim his kingdom, right? So that it, both of those views were right, but they were conflicting in their thought, and they, they didn't know, well, should we look for him from Bethlehem, or should we look for him, or will we know so clearly when he comes back, or when he comes, who he is? And Jesus made it very clear to his disciples, it'll be really clear when I come back. You'll know when I come back. You won't have any doubt in your mind. But isn't this sad that right here, they're... Um, they're arguing themselves out of belief. So there's this confliction and confusion about where Jesus is from. Where is he from? And Jesus' response to their assumption about where he's from is so interesting. It's almost ironic, isn't it? That he says, um, and he cries out in verse 28, Jesus proclaimed. That word is that he cried out very loudly. He wants everybody to know. He says, you know me? He's kind of, he's kind of, teasing them here a little bit. Do you hear that in, in the tone? You know me. Oh, do you know me really? Do you really know me? And you know where I come from? Are you sure? Are you sure you know where I come from? Um, and I love that because he's challenging their knowledge of his origin. And I feel like we as Christians, knowing the other parts of the story, knowing the Gospel of Luke, where we hear so clearly about the angel that came to visit Mary, um, and her her miraculous conception of Jesus, and that um, Jesus would be born by no earthly means. Um, so we know we know that part of the story. And so when I hear this, I kind of grin. He's we know his origin. We know that he didn't just come from um, Nazareth, but rather that his origins are divine. Um, we know that also through John's telling of the gospel, because at the beginning he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ was the, is the eternal Word who existed before all creation. Um, so we have this privileged information, right, as we're reading. So they don't know where he comes from, and I almost feel like shouting out at them. Kind of like talking to the TV screen. Don't do it. He doesn't love you. <laughs> don't you know he's cheating on you? But we know because we've been watching the whole show, right? Well, this is kind of like the same phenomenon. We're sitting here, we're reading this, and they, they don't know where he comes from, and we're saying, he's the eternal word. We know this. 
because we read the beginning of the book. How could, how could you be so blind? And what does that do for us as we're reading? This is why John is the gospel that you give to people who don't yet believe in Jesus, because you say, come on, come and believe in Jesus, because as you're reading it, you say, oh, don't, don't you get it? He was, in the beginning, was the word, and the word was with God. We know this. And as you're saying, wait a second, we have some information that you don't have, that these, this crowd doesn't have. We, as we're reading it, we get further away from the crowd. We get further towards believing in Jesus ourselves. As we, um, as we say, oh, we're not like them because we have some information that they don't have. We then move closer to Jesus and closer to faith in um, Jesus and following him as a disciple ourselves. Any questions about that, that spatial moving? How can we move as a reader from, um, a gr- into a greater depth of belief in Jesus Christ? Well, John is helping us in the way he's telling the story. So Jesus goes on to tell them where he does come from. But I I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus is talking about his origin, where he came from. Um, We know he's talking about God the Father, right? I came from him. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Um, This idea of Jesus being sent... Um, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. That word for sent, for Jesus being sent by God, is um, the same word that we get the word apostle from, which is why I put on your sheet that Jesus is the apostle of God. God has sent Jesus Christ as one to bring to us the good news from, from God himself. Um, And it's not to say that he's on par with the apostles, the 12 apostles. That's what we think of when we hear apostle, right? Well, the 12 apostles are sent ones, those 12 that are sent out by Jesus. Um, And so it's the same word. It talks about someone sending someone else and probably sending someone else with a message um, and with the good news. So Jesus himself is um, a representative sent from God himself. He is God himself, of the same nature as God the Father, but he's the one that goes. You see this in the Godhead, in the three, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who goes from that close-knit relationship. He goes from that close-knit relationship in order to bring us as human beings back into relationship with God. Remember, through sin, we are um, cast out of the Garden of Eden cast out of that close fellowship with God that Adam and Eve had when they walked in the garden with God. Sin has caused this divide where they can't be in God's presence. They can't just walk and talk with him side by side in the garden. And so they're cast out of the garden and there's that angel, that cherubim that guards the garden so that they won't go back. Um, But, um, and we see all throughout scripture It's the story of bringing fallen human beings back into the Garden of Eden, back into that relationship with God, that that place where we can dwell with him and walk with him. I love that old hymn, he walks with me and he talks with me. How how does the rest go? And the... Oh, that's right. Oh, I'm getting chills. I'm sorry. The joys that we share as we tarry there. 
no other can ever know. It's a beautiful hymn, right? Well, it, it, that walking and talking with God is made possible, again, only because of Jesus Christ. Only because Jesus Christ himself is the sent one from God. So that, again, remember we talked about that close-knit relationship of the three and the one. They, become, they are one because they are united in love. Um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet in that dance of love, um, certainly he, Adam and Eve fell out of that dance of love. They got to walk alongside that dance of love, um, probably dance in that dance of love. They fall away, and then um, and Jesus Christ is the one sent from God to go and to live and to die for our sins so that we could then be made holy and brought back into that dance of love and brought back into relationship with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is sent out by God on our behalf. Any questions about that? Yeah, Donna. It seems to me that the verse 28 and 29 are very good examples of Jesus glorifying God and that directional perspective that you said he's saying, pointing, showing the relationship to God. So it's that glorifying, glorifying God. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's so true. Do you see what she's talking about? How he's he's teaching in the temple, and he right there is pointing to God. He who sent me is true, and you don't know him. Ouch. Um, he who sent me is true. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. He's pointing directly to God. You're right. And I'm going to talk about true. What does it mean that God is true in just a minute? Any other thoughts about Jesus being the apostle of God, the sent one? Okay. Well, truth here. What does truth here mean? God is true. We think of truth, I think a lot of us in, in I think of um, all of those Scantron tests that I've taken over the course of my academic career. You know the ones I'm talking about, where you have the little bubbles all along the sheet and you have to use the number two pencil. I always would... Uh, you know, I would invariably, in those long tests with like 200 questions, I'd maybe mark number two on number three and skip the line. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'd have to go back and erase it all. Just give me a new sheet. But they were always numbered sheets, so you couldn't get a new sheet. And so I always, and then I'd get anxious that my erasing marks weren't good enough and I'd get a wrong mark just because I didn't erase it well enough. They were very stressful tests for me for that reason. <laughs> But I would think of those and remember those questions, the true-false questions that you get on those tests. They're horrible, and they always trick you with them, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, we think of truth, and I think all too often we think of truth and false. We think true-false. It's true or it's false. True-false, true-false. And we think of truth in terms of its veracity. Can it be verified? Is this fact true? Check your facts. You always want to check your facts and make sure your facts are true if you're telling a story or talking about something or anything. You want to make sure your facts are true. Is it true? So that's the veracity we're talk when we talk about truth. But this kind of truth here in Scripture, <clears throat> it's not talking about veracity. The best translation of this, this particular permutation of the word for truth is genuineness. Isn't that delightful? God is genuine. God is the ultimate reality. That's another way of saying it. God is real. Um, God is so real. 
um, God is the, the most real person that ever was. Um, God is the ultimate reality, and that's what Jesus is saying here, that um, you might think, and I think for us, we can think so often that whatever's in front of us is the most real thing. Um, that um, I once was walking, you know, again, many of you know, I lived in New York City, and in New York City, the scaffolding changes all the time on the different buildings. I don't know if you know this, if you've ever visited New York, but it's always dangerous. To, I always felt a little scared walking under those scaffolds because people will, were working up above you and they'd have a scaffold over the sidewalk. So to get anywhere, you had to walk under the scaffold. They're making all this noise and using heavy tools that could probably drop three stories down. Uh, I didn't like to think about it. But there's also a lot of graffiti. So I remember once walking under one of these scaffolds and seeing someone had written on the scaffold with a magic big magic marker. I can't remember if it was spray paint. There was a lot of spray painted graffiti. And what they wrote was a quote, and they said, all I can see they cannot take away from me. I just remember walking around thinking, all I can see they cannot take, all I can see they cannot take away from me. No, that's not true. Everything I see, they can take away from me, whoever the they is. Everything I see could be gone in the next moment. Everything I see, the moth might find this wool jacket, and then <laughs> Lenora knows I'm obsessed with moths. <laughs> and then what will happen to my wool? I'll have to go to a tailor, or I'll just throw this jacket out. It'll be gone. Um, all I see they cannot take away from me. I thought, no, that's so wrong. And I felt like I wanted to meet this poor, dissolute, you know, deluded graffiti artist and say, no, that's not the way it is, actually. What you can't see, that's what can't be taken away from you. The truth is um, not necessarily what you can see and touch. Um, the ultimate reality is so sure and steadfast that the temporal material things that come in and out of our lives are nothing compared to the eternal, lasting, um, unshakable quality of God. God is eternal. God will always be there. God has always been there. God will always be there. Even as we're taken up with the temporal things and thinking about the next thing or the thing that's in front of us, the thing that's capturing our time and our attention, that, and if you're like me, then you're obsessing about it. Well, I've got to get, I've got to do this. <laughs> got to go, um, whatever it might be, whether it's something that has to do with your own life or the lives of those you love that you take care of, your um, spouses or children or grandchildren. We can get so immersed in that that we forget that that is the temporal thing. Certainly our relationships with other human beings are just a taste of something more lasting, certainly, with the hope that they will last our whole lives. Don't we hope that, that um, we will always have a good relationship with our daughters or that we will always have that loving marriage? And that's the hope, that's the ideal. And um, it happens, sometimes it doesn't happen. But whether it happens or it doesn't happen, the most lasting and eternal relationship is with the most lasting and eternal person, and that is God himself. So Jesus is saying God is the ultimate reality. God is um, the great I am, the one who was and who is and who always will be. Oh, any questions? Yeah, Donna. Um, I mean, this is ignorance on my part historically, but I guess a lot of the people he's talking to were pagans or at one time thought of God as pagans. You know, had 
him, but he didn't believe in a universal God. It was more of a Greek mythology God. Is that true? Not for who Jesus is talking to. So Jesus is talking to this Jerusalem crowd, not just of people who lived in Jerusalem, but of people who had come up for this Feast of the Tabernacles. So this crowd that he's talking to, they are 100% Jewish, probably. They're 100% Jewish. There's one little instance, I think it's in chapter 12, where there are a couple of Gentiles that come up to Jesus. Um, but it's that's like the amount of times that Gentiles come up to Jesus. I'm not a numbers person, but I would say it's about two percent of the time that we know of from the depiction of his earthly ministry and so but John himself John is writing this gospel for a church that was most likely an amalgam of both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians Um, but what often happened with the Gentile Christians was that the Gentile Christians were very likely God fearers they were very likely to have moved out already of the polytheism because yes the greek worship system was um, polytheistic so there were many gods that they would worship and there was this fear well if i don't appease this god and this god and this god then everything's going to fall apart in my life so i better do my duty in all three of these circumstances and so um but what you will see is that often those gentile converts to christianity had already been influenced somewhat by judaism that's how they, they began to hear about the gospel in the first place. They knew some Jewish Christian, Jews who had become Christians, or they had heard, they, sometimes, they were allowed to go to the synagogues. So you would often have Gentiles in the synagogues. But very likely, they were very unlikely to convert as adults. There were more women converted from um, the Greeks to Judaism than there were men. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about the entrance right for men. Um, but for women, it was much easier to become Jewish than for men. But, but so John is speaking to a mixed group. But, but more, so there is that sense in which did they have this background of a monotheistic belief? And they did. Um, but Jewish, Jesus is still challenging them to um, essentially see, they might have said, yes, Yahweh is true, this Jewish crowd. But would they have said that Jesus came from him? No, probably not. So that's, that's the biggest hurdle for them, more so than the eternal nature of God. Um, any other questions about that? Would, would yeah? Would part of the truth be the, like, the unchangingness of God? Because, you know, true that something is in fashion now, it will not be in fashion tomorrow. But, you know, <laughs> the unchangingness of God is something that baffles me. Yeah. They never, sizes are never the same. I don't know about you, but I go from one store to another and I think, can you just go I'll get on the same page here because I don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. I would agree. That lasting, everla- from everlasting to everlasting, that was in the psalm for Ash Wednesday. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, unchanging, eternal, divine. Thank you, Jenny. So um, I'm just going to touch on these couple points because I do want us to pray. So I'm going to d- hold on to your hat. We're going to go quickly through the rest of it. I talked for too long, so now we got to now we got to now we got to hurry up. 
Um, we don't really have to. We can always spread it out. But um, you'll see <clears throat> there's this conflict between are they going to arrest him or are they not going to arrest him. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid their hand on him. And then later on, the Pharisees are, are muttering about him, and they send the chief priests. The chief priests and the Pharisees send officers to arrest him. One thing that's really interesting about that is that um, these arrest attempts will continue throughout the chapter and throughout the gospel. We're going to see it again. But what's really interesting is that it is in reaction to Jesus' teaching, and I would say it's characterized by a human rebellion against God himself. It is a sinful reaction to Jesus, an unbelieving reaction to Jesus, because they don't believe that he is who he says he is. And if he isn't who he says he is, then the law, the Jewish law, would say that he has to be gotten rid of as soon as possible because he'll continue to lead people astray. Remember with what we were talking about with he's a good man. No, he's leading people astray. And so in that sense, it's tragic that they're going to arrest this one who comes from Yahweh, who they love and believe in, but they don't believe in Jesus, and they don't believe that he comes from God. And so if he's saying these things, but he's false, he's not saying the truth, then he's going to lead. It's true that if there were a false prophet, he would lead people astray. So they are only doing what they think is best. And yet um, they're leading, when they do arrest him, they're arresting God himself, their own God. Um, It's a sign of human rebellion against God. Um, One interesting little sidebar, and we'll talk about this later when we get into the passion narrative, you know, several months down the road. But um, in verse 32, you see that the chief priests and the Pharisees combine forces to get the officers to arrest Jesus. And the chief priests were from the Sadducees. They were the sect of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were upper middle class. They, were, um, they had Roman endorsement of their leadership. They were the ruling power in Jerusalem. So they had a lot of money, power, prestige, and they didn't believe in the resurrection uh, because they believed, well, this is it. Yeah. And the Pharisees were lower middle class, really strong on their Bibles, very strong on the law, very well-versed in scripture, and good teachers, and, um, and believed in the resurrection, because they saw the injustice in the world and they said, well, this is not all there is. And they interpreted scripture in light of the resurrection. So Jesus was essentially closer to the Pharisees in thought and belief. They have their pulse, their finger on the pulse of the people, the Pharisees do. But they don't have the power to arrest Jesus. So what you see is that these two opposing, generally um, disagreeing sects, or you know, this division within the Jewish religious leadership actually combines forces because they're unified in their recognition that Jesus has got to go. It's very sad. Um, they combine forces in order to get rid of Jesus. <clears throat> um, where is Jesus going? Well, again, it is not the hour in verse 30. It's not time yet. It's not God's time. Um, but they have confusion again about where Jesus is going. He says, I'm going to be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus here is, of course, talking about his death, but as he will later talk about his death to his disciples, his death is a return to the Father. He dies, and he's here living by faith that he would die and then be raised from the dead. What I love about this is we see his unwavering faith 
that God would raise him from the dead and that he would then return to the side of the Father, that he would ascend back into heaven to be seated next to the Father who he loves. Um, I find that stunningly beautiful, Jesus' own faith. Um, He will return to the Father. And um, in returning to the Father, there's a sense in which Yes, Jesus is always accessible, but what he's hinting at here is that um, that he won't be accessible always. He won't always be accessible to those who don't believe in him. That there is a time when those who don't believe in him will no longer have access to Jesus. And that's a sobering thought. And that's something we've thought of, we've talked about a little bit in here, that now is the time to believe in Jesus. Now is the day to look at him and turn to him in faith, to repent and believe in Jesus. Now, during this earthly life, when we hear the words of Jesus, now is the time to turn. Because it won't always be time. There won't always be time to turn to Jesus. And that's a sobering thought, yes, for ourselves, but also for those that we love. Um, around us, that we want to, we want them to know the joy that comes from believing in Jesus. We want them to know the joy and the abundance of life that can happen both now and throughout eternity um, through faith in Him. Um, anything else about these passages before we break up and, and you have some time to pray in your tables, with your tables? Any other thoughts? Anything else? Okay. So um, if, you, if you're at a table where you don't have a lot of people and you want to join another table, go for it. I'd like you to just spend some time in prayer. Um, if you have something that's on your heart that you'd like people to pray for, um, please share that. And um, I'm actually going to ask Jenny, can you move to a different table? So just so that, sorry, I'm totally picking on you. I'm going to turn this off. Hang on. Well, first of all, let's pray, pray, and then we'll break up. Okay, so let's let's pray right now. Um, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We see that he is from you, and we know that you are true. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are unchanging, and we see your love for us in the way that you have sent Jesus Christ to draw us back into relationship with you through the forgiveness of our sins, through his death. So we give you thanks and glory and honor and praise. Um, And we, we just receive it. We receive your love for us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.